Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 468 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is Wednesday, December 14th, 2022. Duke Blue Devils, all Duke Blue Devils, every every Duke Blue Devil that could possibly be playing sports right now is on an exam break. So, of course, we are here to uh, to talk about basketball in their absence. I am your host for this episode. I am Sam Klein. I'm joined, as always, by Jason Evans and Donald Wine and... And we have a special repeat guest here on the show today. So before I introduce him, Donald, sir, how are you? We've got, as of a few minutes ago, we only have one game left in this World Cup. Well, we have a final. We have a third place game. Um, That always happens. But the main one that you're talking about is the final. Yes, Argentina-France on Sunday should be an absolute dynamite game. Um, I'm going for France. Sorry, Messi fans. I'm going for France. All right. Jason Evans is also here. Jason, you don't have to be uh, as as tight on your soccer analysis, but how are you? I'm doing quite well. You should know, by the way, that all week, in fact, for the past like two and a half weeks, I have been the lead writer at CNN International on World Cup coverage. So I may not be as good at it as Donald. He has a few years of practice on me, but I I, I know my World Cup stuff. And I am going for Messi and Argentina, Donald. Jason, if you need some extra writing, you know, I I have a website. I, I know a guy that can set you up with uh, some credentials so you can write all that. I'm I'm not taking sides in this one. I've got uh, family from both countries. And uh, so I'm I'm uh, playing neutral for this one. But I, I will I will generate uh, chatter. That's my that's my goal. So that should be fun. Uh, as I mentioned, we have a special guest today. You have heard him on the show before if you've been around, I think, for a year. Uh, he is Brendan Marks. He is a writer at The Athletic. He covers Duke and UNC basketball, but also touches on all things ACC. So we figured while the non-conference schedule has wrapped up for Duke and has mostly wrapped up for the rest of the conference, and as we head into the ACC season, it would be great to check in with him, not just about Duke, but about all topics ACC basketball, just to take a check of of where we are here so far in the season. So, Brendan Marks, thank you so much for returning to the DBR podcast. Yeah, absolutely. That that means that I didn't uh, mess up my first appearance too badly. That you guys will have me back. So I appreciate you. No, you, our you're, standards uh, aren't that high, man. Oh, no, you're always high. welcome. <laughs> always welcome here. Uh, so let's start. I want to I want to get us started with some questions about Duke specifically and sort of your view on them. Uh, I wouldn't say you're a, you're an outsider. You're you know as far as you know you're not you're not a you're not a Duke alum, but you certainly attend a lot of the games. You're there a lot more than we are. Uh, more than many of of our listeners are. So we want to get kind of your take on what you've seen from the team. So the biggest question, I think, at this point, uh, or it's a, it's a it's a two part question, I suppose, because it's about two players, Derek Whitehead and Derek Lively, the second, both of whom were limited early in the season with injuries who have both returned to the lineup. But I don't think anyone would say that they have looked like the top five recruits that they were billed as coming into Duke. So what is your impression of sort of each of their performances to date? And and what do you think we're seeing from them, at least in the near term, when Duke returns to play next week? Yeah, so I think that obviously because they were both injured, we sort of lop them together and consider them a, a tag team. Um, we say, you know, both guys were injured. Both guys are going through similar processes. And, and to some extent, that is obviously true. Like that fact is true. Um, 
but completely different circumstances in my eyes. And, and that sort of colors my perception of each guy. So, you know, in the case of Derek Lively, for instance, uh, we're talking about an injury that was, you know, a calf injury, kept him out, you know, three-ish weeks. Uh, he only missed one actual game, has slowly been working his way back, but, you know, had the bulk of the summer, had the bulk of off-season workouts with the team, um, did have a lot of that, you know, time that, on the other hand, as we're talking about Derek Whitehead, he did not have. Um, a much more serious injury, an actual broken bone. I, I actually have had the same exact injury that Dariq had. Um, I broke that same bone in my foot during college, and I was out about you know eight, nine weeks in a boot and everything. Are you um, sure you didn't go to Duke? Yeah, sure? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and it's not fun. It's really painful, and uh, there is lingering pain, especially after the games. Uh, you know, or for me, there was lingering pain for for weeks, even after I was quote unquote cleared. So. I think you're talking about two dramatically different circumstances, especially considering how much time Derek missed. I mean, he missed a full three months, missed multiple games, um, basically did not get to practice with Tyrese Proctor uh, before the actual start of like live ongoing basketball. So my perception of them is different and that's a long winded way of saying it, but basically I remain higher on Derek Whitehead than Derek Lively because of that. Um, I think that a lot of what we've seen from Derek is sort of what he is. He is an athlete. He is a rim runner. He puts pressure on the rim and pick and roll situations. He's a lob threat. All of that is true. Um, I think the lack of an interior game is very much him. I think, you know, he's not going to be a Ryan Young. He doesn't have post moves. Um, I don't think that we're going to see him, you know, develop into this real three point threat. Uh, he was a three, he was, a, he was a pick and pop guy in high school, not really a pick and roll guy. I don't know that that's really in his bag at this level right now. And so I think with him, you're talking about being a lot closer to the finished product than you are with Derek. So really quickly, because we haven't had someone on the show who has had the exact same injury that one of our players has had, uh, thus, thus the, the quip about you probably playing for Duke basketball at some point in your career. But uh, like, that's a great point, right? Like how, how in your mind, obviously your pain is not what Tariq has been experiencing and, and vice versa, but take us in the mind of someone who has had that injury. What qualities were slower to come back than others? Was it like, you know, some people maybe apply pressure a little bit differently. Is it something where you just need the confidence kind of like an AJ Griffin last year, just needed to have the confidence that you could, you know, do something the way that you did before what is that like having that injury and, re and returning from it? Yeah, I, I think for AJ, it was a little bit of a different situation because he had a longer history, you know, for Dariq and for myself, it was sort of, you know, a one-off deal. Um, and again, I am absolutely not, you know, I, I think Spencer Hubbard has me beat in a height advantage. So I'm, I'm certainly not a, a basketball player. Uh, Dude, that's a deep cut, Spencer Hubbard. Way to go. I like <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> um, but I will say this, I think the thing for me that, that, took the longest time was um, even when you do go back to working out and to running and to doing all those things, you do still have like a lingering awkwardness and it is heavier and you are less nimble on your feet. And, you know, obviously Derek waited longer to sort of come back and with his future, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but there is lingering pain still, you know, there, it is sore the day after games and things. And um, that's not even taking into account the fact that while you're, you know, recap rehabbing and recovering like you can't be working out to the same extent so the conditioning factor is huge there um the last thing that i would add is that i think for Derek specifically given his skill set and the way that he likes to play the foot is a particularly tough injury because so much explosiveness 
depends on being able to generate force and explosion out of your feet. Um, that was his best attribute in high school and as a, as a prospect. And um, so I think that's why we're maybe seeing it take a little bit longer for him to, you know, get back to, to the explosive slasher that I think a lot of Duke fans anticipated he would be. So this Duke team, Brendan, doesn't have a Paulo Bencaro or a Zion Williamson, the type of guys who are coming in and, and able to dominate the game for long stretches. But it does feel like night to night, Duke has featured a lot of different weapons, guys who can score in different ways, make a big impact in different ways. So knowing that and, and seeing them so far this season, who do you think is Duke's go-to player down the stretch in games, you know, for the rest of this season? Yeah, I, I, I think that, um, you know, ideally you have one guy. Like last year against Texas Tech, against Arkansas, you give the ball to Paolo Bencaro and you clear out the rest of the floor and you get out of the way. Um, that's a great luxury to have. Um, I, I think that it's going to be somewhat matchup dependent this year. Um, but I think the two guys, you know, number one at the top of the list is Jeremy Roach. He's going to get every opportunity to make those shots. He's going to have every opportunity because I think with Jeremy, you have, uh, there's an, an array of ways that he could beat you. He can beat you driving to the basket. He can get to the free throw line. And especially of late, he's proven that as a scorer, especially from DP, he has some semblance of consistency. Um, so I think that he's going to get every opportunity, but let's say he's having an off game or somebody else has the hot hand, you know, could I see it being Kyle Filipowski? Absolutely. hundred percent. I think he's, you know, right there in that same tier. Um, the guy who I, I don't know, it sounds weird for me to even say it, but I, I do think that there are going to be a lot of like late game situations where like Mark Mitchell has opportunities. Um, and I don't think that's anything that anybody expects, but he has just been, so aggressive attacking the basket. He's been so, so good at getting fouled. Um, you know, when he gets playing downhill, he's really tough to stop because of his athleticism and his size. So um, I, I would say Jeremy and Kyle are obviously the two front runners. Maybe Derek gets to that point at some point this season, but um, you know, Mark, when he gets going late in games, as we saw, I think uh, what was the last one Boston college, maybe where he got going late. It's one of those things where he's like a runaway train once he gets going. I, you know, I, I've got to follow up on that. I, I wonder what, who do you think are going to be the starters on this team once Derek Whitehead is more up to speed? Because I, I was sort of thinking, I mean, Mark Mitchell's been pretty inconsistent. I was thinking M Mitchell might be the odd man out, but I I'd love to hear your take on that. Oh, and and maybe, maybe the answer is, by the way, that Derek Whitehead never starts. I don't know. Yeah, I, I could see it going multiple ways. I think there's a, a couple ways John plays this. Either A, he keeps things as, are, as they are, brings Dariq off the bench and Dariq is sort of your second unit score. Um, and I think that that can be really impactful. And, you know, you've seen a lot of consistency from, from this starting group so far. So not wanting to mess with a good thing. I understand. Um, at the same point, I could see him switching that out. I could see him going for, you know, Dariq instead of Mark and bringing Mark off the bench. I just don't know if that, I don't know if having Jalen Blakes and Ryan Young and Mark on the floor at the same time is necessarily, and Dariq, uh, I don't know if that's necessarily your best lineup combination. Um, you're, you're lacking a lot of shooting there. Um, I, I think this very well could be a fluid situation. Um, you know, I think as we saw over the last month, the last season, and obviously Trevor Keels' injury had something to do with it. And, Jeremy, and, and then Trevor's play late in the season had something to do with it. But 
you know, from February on, we basically had two starting lineups and they came in specific segments, but you had the lineup with Roach in the starting lineup and you had the lineup with Keels in the starting lineup. Um, I think you could see a similar situation to that where there are times where it's Mark, times where it's Dariq. The thing that I think a lot of fans want to see is Derek Lively coming off the bench and running like a Roach, Proctor, Whitehead, Mitchell, Filipowski, all offense unit. Um, I think a lot of fans are intrigued by that. I, I don't know that you have the defense that you need there. And I don't know that you have the rebounding you need there. So we'll see. I think it's going to be a fluid situation. I don't think that John is, is really settled. And, and to some extent, it depends on, you know, what Derek looks like when he gets to be fully formed. Brendan, you talked about Kyle Filipowski a lot in the last one. And, and I feel like Filipowski has been the, the biggest revelation for Duke this season. He came in, as a top 10 recruit, certainly a guy with a lot of hype given his high school ranking. But in the preseason, we heard a lot about how he wasn't necessarily keeping up with the rest of the team, how how his adjustment period might have been longer. And until this week, he had won every ACC Rookie of the Week award uh, to start the season. So uh, what if I guess how has how has his performance sort of defied the expectations the way that you thought about it prior to the season? And um, sort of what are you expecting from Filipowski the rest of the way? He's he's close to being like averaging a double-double at this point. Yeah, he's been insanely productive. Um, so I get so many questions about the preseason with him. And people, you know, I think there, there was a pretty notable podcast that he caught some flack on, um, you know, saying he wasn't keeping up. Um, do you know who it reminded me a lot of? It was a lot of the same stuff that I heard last summer about AJ Griffin. It was a lot of the same stuff in terms of this kid's good enough. He just has to pick it up. He doesn't understand what it takes yet. Um, and, I, and I think that for Kyle, there was a little bit of a like welcome to college experience those first couple of months. You know, I think you'll see some players have it during the season. Some players have it you know, maybe a year in. Um, his was this summer and it was those first couple of weeks. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I asked him after a game a couple of weeks ago, you know, what, what was the thing that surprised him the most about his performance so far this season? And he said, uh, it's the consistency that I've been able to do it with because there was all this hype about me. And then there was anti-hype about me and I just am sort of playing. And so I think for him, he realized over the summer, I'm good enough. I just have to put in the work to be good enough. And, you know, this is a guy who maybe wasn't coming from a situation like, you know, Mark, for example, is coming from Sunrise Christian. Um, that's like a college prep high school. You know, that is, you know, his, he's playing against Grady Dick, another, you know, his roommate is another future first rounder. So um, I don't know that Kyle had that same experience. And so I think there might have been a little bit of a splash of cold water in terms of like, dude, these are the expectations when you get here. Um, in terms of his game, he's been so much better than I thought he was going to be. You know, and I, 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 you know, before the season did not think he was a one and done guy. And I think at this point it's, it's pretty clear that he's going to be, um, especially defensively, he's just been so much better in space than I thought he would be. And that was the major con concern that every scout I talked to, everybody who came through practice, everybody who saw him at the high school level, um, you know, on the AAU circuit, that was the thing they were all concerned about. Like if this dude is going to be a four at the next level, can he defend fours? Um, because that's what he is. He's not a five. He is a seven foot stretch forward. Um, which is what makes him so tough because he, he does have some post skills. Uh, I, I think I've just been really, really impressed by him as much as anybody on the team. And, you know, we did a college basketball roundtable with our national staff a few weeks ago. And I, I said, he's been 
you know, as relevatory to me as, as any player that I've seen in person so far this season, outside of Edie, who is a beast. <laughs> right. Certainly. And, and, and you got to see him as well up close. So we, uh, when right after Kyle Filipowski committed to Duke, we were talking to him on this show and he said he expects to be a multi-year player. So uh, it's possible he was lying to us. Uh, yeah. He, he, uh, I know that there were a lot of opposing coaches who thought over the course of the last year that he got the quote unquote Duke recruiting bump. Um, if you talk to coaches around the ACC and other coaches who were in the mix recruiting him assistants and whatnot, and they were all like, you know, especially when the talk was coming out this preseason, it was like, well, you know, if you come here, he'd be starting, he'd be our star. Uh, and then it has, uh, they, they've quickly let go of that talk. <laughs> uh, one more question on, on this Duke team. And then I think we're going to transition to talking a bit more about the program as it were, but uh, we've noticed one, one uh, major change, I think that John Shire has made this year and, and not clear yet if that's a John Shire is still tinkering or this is his style thing is that he's using the bench a lot more than we're used to coach K doing, especially in recent years, he has not trimmed the rotation yet and uh, is still playing with a lot of different lineup combinations. Some of that may be injury related as, as you say that, you know, Whitehead is still sort of recovering. Roach was out in the last game, but what are you seeing in, in Shire's, uh, use of the bench and and the way that he's kind of going a lot deeper than Duke fans are used to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are, you know, quantitative metrics to back that up. Um, so, you know, about a third of Duke's minutes per Ken Palm are coming from the bench right now. Um, they, they're in the 50th percentile nationally. So, you know, dead even average in terms of bench uh, scoring. So, you know, like it, it is a legit factor to this team and I think it's intentional. And I think that it's going to endure for the course of the season. I don't think that it is necessarily endemic of the way that John is going to play every season. But the thing about John that I think a lot, if you just talking to people in the basketball industry before this season, the, the belief among some people was that in terms of a, a coach, someone who is making decisions, someone who is calling specific sets, who is adjusting to their personnel, there were some people who thought that he would be something of an upgrade over maybe what we had seen the last couple of years from Mike Krzyzewski, which sounds blasphemous. Um, but I think you have seen him do a really good job of adapting to fit his personnel, which is the fact that he knows he doesn't have a Zion. He doesn't have a Paolo. He doesn't have one of those guys. And he needs to go eight, nine, and as he saw against UMES, 10 deep uh, to be able to make the most of, of the talent that he's got. And so I think that when you're talking about this Duke team, the beauty of it is not that the starters like last year were an NBA starting five. The beauty of it is that, you know, it's not quite Kentucky 2015, but you can almost platoon. You can almost roll out two entirely different starting fives and the malleability with the roster. I mean, you know, the starting lineup the other night was gigantic. Um, you can also go super small and you can have a Roach Blake's Proctor three guard look if you want. Um, so I think that him using the bench is, it is some level of experimentation still. I think that'll continue, but I, I expect the bench to be a major component for most of the season. I really do. Maybe that changes next year. If there is a, you know, if Mackenzie Mbako comes in and is, you know, bang, he's, he's one of those caliber guys, maybe that changes, but John has done a really good job of fitting his style to his personnel so far this year. And that's what I think the bench represents. Brendan, don't worry about blaspheming the end of the coach K era. We, we, we hold nothing sacred here. We're, we're totally progressive in, in that light. One more question about this team that has a follow-up to that. And then I want to hand it to Jason. 
uh, how many games are Christian Reeves and Jaden Shute going to play in in ACC season? I, I think that uh, Jaden will play in more than Christian. Um, and I, to be honest with you, don't totally understand the staff's decision to burn Christian's red shirt in the first game of the season. Um, I was a little curious about that myself. Um, I think we Jayden, have not yet gotten the explanation on that, 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 that uh, satisfies anyone's wondering about it. No. And, and, and you all, <laughs> um, I, I think Jaden will play in more. And, and here's the reason why Jaden has the thing that Duke doesn't have. Jaden can shoot the ball. And, you know, I don't think that he's going to be hitting step back threes against, you know, the top half of the ACC. Um, but do I think that he's a guy that could hit two or three a season? I do. Uh, or a game per season, I do. And, I, you know, I was actually talking to um, a scout the other night, and he was likening the situation to another team that I cover uh, and, and to Kerwin Walton from a couple of years ago at North Carolina. I don't know if you guys remember him, but uh, oh, yeah. basically he comes in, didn't play at all until the end of December of his freshman year, you know, comes in and starts hitting at a 42% clip. And Roy Williams is like, hey, I, I got to play this kid. Um, if Jaden is doing the same thing, I think we could be talking about a similar situation where he, you know, forces John to reevaluate just how just how deep he's willing to go. All right. So, Brendan, I'm taking over now. And, and sort of the, the theme we had was that Sam was asking more individual player questions. We got off of that a little bit. I'm going to ask you mostly big macro team wide stuff. Uh, and also some stuff related to John Shire, although you kind of already answered it. <laughs> and then Donald's going to do the ACC. So let me start with this. Shire said um, in the preseason and early in the year that he thought this could be a special team on defense, that this team's identity was their defense. Do you think they're living up to that promise? Do, do you agree with that assessment that this team begins on the defensive end of the floor? 100%. 100%. And I, I will say when John, I think the first time that he told me and a couple of other reporters, this was in June, he was like, we're going to be a defense first team. And we were all like, yeah, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Um, because he had 11 newcomers. He had seven freshmen and the continuity that they play with and the cohesiveness defensively is crazy. Um, you know, I try not to really lean too heavily on Ken Palm's metrics this early in the season in terms of overall offensive and defensive efficiency because they're skewed by last year's data. Um, but there's a site that I really like called CBB Analytics, and they have Duke in the 91st percentile nationally right now in terms of defensive rating, allowing 91 points um, you know, out of 100 possessions. So it's, it's real and it's legit. And you know, I, I think that the game that sort of told me that it was viable for that to be this team's identity, and it's going to sound wild because they're not the best team Duke has played, uh, was the Bellarmine game. And it's because the way that Bellarmine plays offensively, they, that, that they're, you know, sort of Princeton offense to a hyper degree. Um, there's no ball screen coverages you have to deal with. There is no dribbling where you can poke the ball away from a guy. The on-ball defense is different. Um, it's all about continuity and understanding movement and communication. And Duke did a really good job of navigating those screens and passing guys off. And sometimes it was verbally, sometimes it was Jeremy Roach shoving Tyrese Proctor to the other edge of the court. Um, <laughs> but it worked. And, and so I think that told me that this could be a foundation of this team. And, and that's what we've seen so far. All right, so let's go to the other end of the floor because they've struggled on offense. <laughs> We've had, There have been some games where this team couldn't throw the ball in the ocean. What is going on there and what, what can be done to make it a little bit better? Yeah, I, I think people are a little bit um, overly critical. The defense is clearly further ahead than the offense right now. The shooting is not great. 
I don't know that this is going to be a great shooting team over the course of the season, but I, I think people are panicking. And right now, uh, Duke is averaging like 9.2 points per possession overall, which is not bad. Um, you know, that, that same website I was just referencing, CBB Analytics, has them in the 83rd percentile of offensive rating. You know, it's not as bad as people think. It's been inconsistent, and it has shown up poorly in certain games. Um, you know, I think the Purdue game really did a lot to sort of sour people's perceptions of what everything was dude Oregon State I mean that was terrible Oregon State set the game <laughs> of basketball back five years uh, I don't disagree with you um, but I think the thing that we forgot then is that it's a work in progress uh, especially with those injured guys because they are Derek is never going to be a key you know fulcrum of the offense but the rim pressure he provides is real and when teams have to worry about tagging him on the backside, it's going to open up cutters, which is why I think Mark Mitchell has started to come on so strong. It's because that's what Mark does best. And that's where there are some gaps that he can take advantage of when Derek is spacing the floor and pick and roll. Um, you know, Derek can be, I, I thought Derek was going to, before he was injured, I thought he was going to be the leading scorer on this team. I still think he has that kind of offensive upside. So if do gets, we. <laughs> if, he, if he gets back to full strength, there's no reason he can't be that guy. Um so I, I think it's about continuing to integrate. And when you're trying to, you know, ease some of those pieces in, it's not always pretty. Um, you know, I know Duke had its, its COVID situation uh, sort of around this time last year, a couple of weeks after this. Uh, and that coincided with reintegrating AJ. Then it coincided with Trevor getting hurt, uh, you know, a couple of weeks after that. There were some rocky offensive performances in there too. I, I think the thing that you've seen if you're a Duke fan offensively is you've seen that Jeremy Roach is playing in my eyes, maybe not every single game at that NCAA tournament level, but certainly at the most consistent season long pace of his career. That's incredibly encouraging. Kyle Filipowski has been a do everything guy. He's in Ken Palm's top 10 player of the year ratings. He is a do everything stretch forward. Um, he's going to continue to be, get better. Ryan Young has been the best YMCA pickup of, of all time. Uh, <laughs> he's, he is number four right now in the country in terms of offensive rebounding. I don't know if that endures through ACC play, but even if he's a top 25 guy in that respect, Duke found an absolute gem in picking him up in the portal. Um, Tyrese Proctor is, I think, learning the feel of the American game and talking to some people in Australia. There are real adjustments that you have to make coming over here. So there's a lot that's still in the hopper, so to speak. And so I think if you're a Duke fan, it's about understanding that it's going to be a process and this maybe doesn't look what you want it to look like until February. Um, there are going to be flashes, but I think it's going to take that long to find the consistency because of so many moving pieces. I think it's easy for Duke fans to sort of remember the losses. I mean, we lost at Kansas. No shame in that. It was a game that they led until late. But Duke fans just aren't used to the kind of beatdown that we saw against Purdue. But on the other hand, this team does have some nice results. I mean, wins over Xavier, Ohio State, Iowa, those are all really good wins. Uh, especially because they weren't all home games. You know, they were neutral court games for the most part. So give me a letter grade on this team thus far. Um, you know, I'm interested in hearing where you think, I guess maybe relative to expectations, how you think they've done. Relative to expectations is the, is the interesting thing there, because quite frankly, I thought Duke was going to struggle more than it has to start the season because I didn't think the defense would be anywhere near what it is. I thought the defense was going to take a couple of weeks to get to this form. Um, so I'd give them probably a B plus. 
And I, I think, you know, you like, like you mentioned, that Iowa result is going to age really well, even though um, Murray may or may not be out for a couple of games with an injury. Same thing with Ohio State. I think that one's going to age well. Um, you know, Sean Miller and Xavier, like that's a good team. Like those are three tournament caliber teams. Um, you'll take those in the non-conference. And the Kansas game, it's not like it was a blowout. It was a game that Duke was leading in the last couple of minutes. And then Kansas goes on a run. Oh, wait it's the defending national champions with a national champion point guard and a guy in Jalen Wilson, who looks like he's going to be an all American. Um, it was also what their third game of the season. So like, I, I yeah. think there, I, so I think there's some grace there. The Purdue game is different. The Purdue game was a beat down. Um, I think the thing that was so frustrating there was um, Edie is going to get his and, and you didn't stop the other guys from doing their damage. You let them both have it. And that's what John said after the game was we let Edie get his and we let everybody else get theirs too. And um, I think that was a real wake up call for this team in terms of like, you know, what, what it is going to take against some of the best teams in the country. I Purdue is the best team I've seen in person so far. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, UConn is probably right behind them in terms of teams I've seen live. Alabama is, you know, can be really good. I know they've had some injuries and Amari Burnett's out now. Um, but like Purdue is the best team I've seen live. And I think they're a worthy number one team in the country right now. There is no shame in losing to the best team in the country. Um, nobody expected Duke to be that right now. And I don't know that anybody really expected Duke to be that this season. Um, so I, I would say a B plus, you would have liked to have maybe seen a, a better response at the end of the Kansas game. You would have maybe have liked to have seen, um, you know, some better offense in some of those slogs like the Oregon state game. Um, but look, John Shire is finding ways to win games and he's finding ways to win games with an incomplete and a constantly shifting rotation. And um, I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. I, I am really impressed. And I know a lot of people are impressed by the job he's done so far. That, that kind of rolls me into my last question, which is, you know, it's a combination of what you just uh, were talking about. Give me a later letter grade on John Shire. And then also talk to me a little bit about how, you know, you, you had this gig when Coach K was there. Compare what you're seeing from the two programs, the Coach K-led Duke program and the John Shire-led Duke program, and, and talk about the differences. Let's start with your letter grade on John. Yeah, you know, I, I think I might even give John an A-. minus. Um, I think he's been that good. I, I think, you know, I, I really cannot emphasize enough how impressive what it is that Duke is doing defensively. Their coordination for having so many young pieces has been stellar. Um, him getting, you know... I don't know that Kyle Filipowski was defending that well in space before John got him, you know, and I think that um, there are still guys who can take strides. I think that Tyrese can take strides and you have some built in, you know, terrific defenders who he had, like Mark was always going to be a terrific defender. Jalen Blake's in the flashes we saw last season was a terrific defender, maybe a little foul prone, but a good on ball defender. Jeremy Roach has shown the ability to be a pickpocket and to be a pest on defense as well. So you had good pieces. Lively was obviously known for that coming out of high school. Um, but the connectiveness has, has really stood out for me. And also offensively, I think he's doing some creative things. You know, Duke has run a lot more open sets. They're running a lot more five out. Um, he's done some different things in the pick and roll. You know, I, I've asked him a couple of times about, you know, his, his screen setting. You know, they're running a lot of horns actions with Jacob Grandison as one of the screeners. Um, I think that's a really interesting dynamic because it opens him up off of certain actions. So I really like what John has done. I think that this is a team that like, if you told Duke fans before the year that this was what the first 12 games of the season were going to look like, but that the arrow would be pointed this far up, I, I think a lot of them would have taken that. And 
you know, looking at the national landscape, even and the ACC landscape, which I know we're going to hit on here in a little bit. Um, I think Duke's arrow is pointing up as much as anyone's too. And considering where they're already at, that, that really says a lot about the job he's done with this team already in terms of the program. Um, you know, it's looser, it's more open. Um, you know, I've been to multiple. Oh, oh boy, believe me, I, I know how close the program was under Coach K. We all experienced it. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, not not saying that John is, you know, uh, inviting me in to, to watch video postgame, um, but there, there's a lot more accessibility. And, and I think with that, there's been a lot more understanding. I think there's been a lot more getting to know the players and why things work the way they do. Um, and I think that sort of openness just really – works well for everybody um you know the other school i cover it's been a little bit of the opposite situation where maybe it was a little more open before than it is now um so it's been interesting really yeah so it's just been interesting for me to sort of see the the difference in how uh every coach approaches things and um but you know for john to be as i can tell you one thing duke was not letting assistant coaches from other programs come to its preseason practices when when coach k was there so um it's 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 been very different in a, in a positive way. All right. We are going to take a quick break on the other side. Donald is going to, uh, to get us into a discussion about the rest of the ACC. Stick around. So, Brendan, we want to shift now from Duke to the rest of the ACC. You obviously covered Duke and UNC quite extensively, but you also get to see the entire ACC through that. So just to start, what has surprised you the most about how the season has gone thus far for all of the teams in the ACC? Yeah, um, well, I, I am a, a, an unabashed and shameless ACC homer. Um, I want the ACC to do well. I want my teams to do well. Uh, Amen, brother. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just makes my job a lot easier when the ACC does well. Um, and, and I think that the ACC has good basketball. And I think I thought it was going to be better this year. And it has probably been even there have been more challenging and more threatening teams than I thought there would be at this point already in this year. Um, you know, I, I thought that Virginia would be good. I didn't think they would be this good. I thought that Duke would struggle a little bit. They've been better than I thought they would be. I thought North Carolina would struggle a little bit. They certainly have, um, but they are starting to pick things up. Um, I don't think Virginia Tech has played its best basketball yet, and they've got a number of nice wins already. Miami has gotten a couple of nice wins and, and production from Nigel Pack. NC State looks like it might, might be able to, depending on how the schedule shakes out, you know, like be in contention for, for games that matter in February. So, um, you know, Clemson looks good. So I, I think there's a lot of teams in the ACC that um, just really help the strength of the league. You hate to be in a situation last year for Duke and for everybody else where you've only got one shot to improve your resume. For Duke, it was we have no opportunity to improve our resume. What we did in the non-conference stands for itself. We can only go down. For every other team, it was this is our one opportunity. Otherwise, none of our games really matter. It doesn't matter who we win or we lose to. We can explain it away. Um, I, I think it's just a much healthier top to bottom league. And, you know, Obviously, Louisville is, uh, you know, emphasizing in, in red ink uh, the bottom of it. Um, the faces you're all making are, are kind, given the way that they've played. Uh, we'll talk but, about them in a minute. <laughs> yeah, but the, but the ACC top to bottom, I think, has just been um, in, a, in a lot better form than it was, obviously, this time of season ago. 
I mean, you mentioned a few teams, right, that we, I think all of us have said have exceeded expectations. At this point right now, you know, are some of these teams you mentioned, the Clemsons, the NC States, uh, you know, the Virginia Techs of the world. We know Duke and, and Virginia are probably slated to be in the NCAA tournament if the tournament was today. But what about some of these other teams in the ACC? What Their, their early progno- prognosis of being in that tournament. Yeah, you know, I, I think there are right now probably four teams that I would feel comfortable saying are like definitely going to make the tournament from the ACC, and it's Duke, North Carolina, Virginia, Virginia Tech. I think there's no question that all four of those teams are getting in. Um, and then it's sort of a matter of how do things shake out. I think NC State has a real chance. I really do. I think NC State has a real chance to, to, to sneak in. I think Clemson, depending on how things break. Um, hey, have you looked at Clemson's schedule? Because in the preseason, I was talking about this. Clemson's schedule, there, there is no easier schedule among any, in terms of the conference schedule, just how it randomly shook out for them. I, I'm, I'm with you. Clemson's going to be a contender. They are. And I, and I think PJ Hall is one of the best big men in the league. And I, I had concerns that he was not going to be healthy this early on, or at least not as effective as he has been. And then he goes out. And, you know, I think that Wake Forest game was sort of like the, you know, I'm back uh, game from him. And, and so I think they have a chance. Um, Miami, I would say Miami's probably at the top of that next in list. Like, I don't, I don't think it's guaranteed they get in, but most likely they will. So if I had to say right now, I'd probably say six teams from the league make it, um, you know, I'd take those four, I would take, uh, Miami, and then I would take probably one of Clemson or NC state. I don't know that both of them are going to get in. Um, but that's, that's how the ACC should be. Um, and there are going to be some of those bottom feeders and, you know, Maybe Wake Forest picks it up and goes on a run. I think that Steve Forbes is one of the best coaches in the league. Maybe that can happen. Um, but I'll say right now, I'll, I, I would say my early prognosis would be six teams. And do you think that, you know, the fact that obviously the ACC Big Ten Challenge had his last year this year, the ACC won that challenge, which always is something that the ACC as a conference can then say, oh, you think the Big Ten is the best conference in the country? Well, our teams beat them in this challenge. Does that help them? Uh, at least some of these teams there might be on the bubble down the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we learned last year, the value of the non-conference. We learned that, you know, it, it is great to have done. Um, it's great to do well in conference play. It's great to win 13 ACC games or whatever, like that used to, 14 ACC games. You're making the tournament that used to sort of be the, the sort of language we used. And now we're seeing like, look, the conference, the non-conference slate matters that much. Um, and really what it does is it impacts it impacts the starting point for conference play. It impacts what conference play is. it can be worth. And so I think the ACC has done a much better job, like I said, of, of you know, sort of positioning itself to where, you know, there are going to be January conference games that matter, and they're going to be late January and February and deep into March. There are going to be conference games that matter, and, and that's how it should be. And it's not just for the Dukes of the world. It's not just for the North Carolinas of the world. It's going to be for everybody. And, um, that I think is going to bring out the best in teams versus, you know, maybe at the end of last season, um, you, you didn't quite see that from every ACC side. You, you just talked about some of the teams that have done well and, and teams that could factor in at the end of the season. What about some of the players uh, that could factor in for postseason awards, especially the all ACC and ACC player of the year? Yeah, totally. So, you know, I think uh, we, we mentioned one of them, PJ Hall at Clemson, um, you know, we'll sort of see what the what the consistency looks like in conference play, but certainly he's going to be a guy that is going to be on the ballot for all ACC. Um, he's one of the best, the most complete offensive bigs in the country, can do a little bit of everything, can hurt you, you know, outside of the paint, obviously has an array of post moves inside, can rebound the basketball. Um, he's a guy I really like. Um, 
trying to think who was actually on the all ACC preseason Terquavion Smith at NC state. Um, you know, I think enough said about him. He's, he's a, he's a pro, he's a pro. Like he's, he is as good as everybody says he is. I thought he was going to lead the league in field goal attempts this year. And um, you know, that, that backcourt is special. I mean, that's one of the better backcourts in the league with him and Jarkel Joyner. I don't know that Joyner is good enough to get there individually. Um, you know, the old, the old staples down at Miami um, you know, you've got, Isaiah Wong, Nigel Pack. I don't know that enough people are going to be familiar with Nigel Pack to give him his flowers, um, but he's already hit a, a game-winning shot and, you know, is, is producing at a pretty high level. Um, he was he was first-team All-Big 12 last year. How, how can we ignore him? <laughs> I, think, I, I think, you know, and that's the thing that I'm so interested in about the transfers is, like, seeing who gets their flowers in that respect because I don't know that all of them are going to. Um, you know, at Virginia, there's a number of guys, but, you know, we'll see. I hope Reese Beekman is not hurt. Reese Beekman to me is a, he, he looks like an all ACC first team guard right now um, at North Carolina, uh, Armando Baycott, you know, preseason player of the year. I think he's, you know, he, he's still performing at that same rate. Um, he's going to barring injury uh, in sometime in conference play. He's going to set North Carolina's career rebounding record, um, which is crazy. He's already got their, all-time double-digit rebounding game record. He's going to get the double-double record. He's going to average a double-double for his career. Like he's, you know, he's a guy who is probably going to have his his jersey retired there um, or honored, not retired. So those are a lot of the guys that you look at. Um, trying to think of some others who are really good. Um, Virginia Tech. Didn't talk about Virginia Tech. Justin Mutz. Um, it's crazy to me that Sean Padula is a name that I'm throwing out here, but Sean Padula, I mean, he's playing that efficiently. Um, I got a fun Sean Padula story. If you guys will briefly indulge me um, last year, it. last year in the preseason. And I like doing these at ACC media day when I have the time I didn't this year, but I went around and I asked every, you know, player that I could find a set of like five or six questions, you know, who's the guy you most would want to play with in the league, not on your team. Who's the coach you'd most want to play for. What's your favorite venue, et cetera, et cetera. And for most underrated player, I got a lot of like Isaiah Wong and, you know, DeVoe at, at Georgia Tech. And I got one vote for Sean Padula. And I was so perplexed that I went back and looked at the ballots. And uh, the, this was clearly a ballot done by Sean Padula because he had put himself for every <laughs> single award. That That's hysterical. Hey, and, bet on yourself. <laughs> and Sean Padula bet on himself. And I have some neighbors who are huge Virginia Tech fans, and they thought that story was hilarious. But they were also like, hey, don't write him off just because of that. And, and so now seeing him, like, actually do that is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I, I would say I think at this juncture, it's going to be a stiffer competition in the front court than the back court um, for all ACC. Because between Hall, Baycott, Filipowski, Mutz, Jaden Gardner. I mean, just off the top of my head, that's that's a lot of really good guys. John Hugo. Probably, it'll probably come down to some, you know, 1v1 matchups as those teams play throughout the season. Hey, I, I want to shift gears to UNC for a moment. You know, they started off as the preseason number one team in the country. Uh, I went off to the World Cup and they decided to lose every game until I got back. Um, so they have, they're now out of the polls. But what do you think is going wrong there so far this season? Yeah, well, you know, they, they've won their last two games and I think are starting to right the ship. But the biggest thing is for, for as um, subpar shooting team as Duke has been, Carolina is worse. I mean, um, North Carolina has regressed in a major way shooting-wise, and this was my major concern for them going into the season. It wasn't just that you were losing Brady Manick in terms of his efficiency. 
you were losing him in terms of his quantity. I mean, by the end of last season over Carolina's last 13 or so games, he was averaging 10 three-point attempts a game and hitting at a 45% clip. Like there is no one-for-one replacement there. And, and Pete Nance has been a nice addition. He's a guy who has hit multiple threes, I think in three of their like 11 games. So, you know, one in every three and a half games or so. Uh, but he is not the same kind of, uh, you know, quick trigger, you know, I'm, I'm shooting as soon as I get the ball catch and shoot guy that Brady was and Caleb Love and RJ Davis have both regressed and they're not seeing a ton of produ- production from their bench. And so because of the lack of three-point shooting, their offense had no spacing. Defenses could hard hedge them in every single ball screen situation, could double the guards, could make life difficult. And so now what you've seen in the last two games and, and has um, improved their points in transition, has improved their points in the paint, has improved their has actually improved their three-point percentage because they're getting more efficient looks is they're playing through the post more and they're playing through a guy who was an All-American last year. What a novel concept. Um, and so you've seen them be much more efficient. You've seen their rebounding numbers be better. Their free throw numbers be better. They're catching and then kicking back out. Um, and sort of like with Duke, both of these teams are built to be inside-out teams rather than the other way around. Duke figured that out you know, three weeks before North Carolina did, though. So we've talked about the top of the ACC. We've talked about the best players in the ACC. Let's go down to the bottom. Um, So we're talking about clubs like Louisville and FSU having just terrible seasons right now. FSU three and nine so far. They are one and one in the ACC. Louisville uh, joins Cal as the only two teams. They're one and one. They're one and one because they beat Louisville. (laughs) Hey, a win's a win. A win's a win. (laughs) Um, But Louisville joins Cal as the only two teams in division one basketball to have not won a game yet this year. So we talked about, you know, the top that's what's going well for the people at the top, what's going so poorly for those guys at the bottom. Florida state is slightly more explainable in my eyes. They've had injuries, Baba Miller suspended, which is the grossest suspension and the most unfair thing the NCAA has done in like the last 20 minutes, because they're always doing those sorts of things. Um, that kid should not be sitting. But so they've had some injuries. And and here's the thing, like when you think of Florida State at its heyday under Leonard Hamilton and the, you know, 2020 ACC champion Florida State Seminoles who didn't actually get a chance to go and see what they would do. It was a defensive team. You know, these were long teams, nine guys, six, four to six, seven. They were going to grind you out. They were going to take you out of your actions. They were going to make you just sort of freelance. Um, you weren't going to be able to move the ball. Uh, your assist rate was going to go way down. Like they were really going to make your life tough defensively. And the last couple of years, they have slowly slipped from that perch. And I don't know if that's an intentional pivot to try and incorporate more offense from Leonard's part. Obviously they brought in a couple of one and done guys. They brought in a couple of five stars who some have panned out maybe more than others. Um, I thought Matthew Cleveland was going to take maybe more of a star turn than he has. Um, but you have seen that defensive identity deteriorate basically. And as a result, you have a team that's not great on offense. You have a team that isn't stout and doesn't take you out of your, your actions defensively anymore, has had a couple of injuries, has had some roster instability. And and so I think that one's a little more explainable. Um, sadly, I do think this might be the last year that we see Leonard Hamilton coaching in the ACC, which, you know, this to me is the first time that Leonard Hamilton, I think has looked tired or has looked his age. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I would love to be wrong. I'm wrong frequently. This would be a great case for it, but that's sort of my read on that situation. Um, and then in terms of Louisville, oh my God, it's just a flaming pile of trash. It's horrible. Every part of it is bad. Um, 
And and don't sugarcoat it. Tell us tell us how you really feel. (laughs) If they don't beat Famu, they might not win a game. I don't know when they're going to win a game. Um, And it's a situation where it's not. And and a couple of my colleagues, Sam Vecini, has done a couple of podcasts about this. Um, You know, we've talked about this in our college basketball roundtables. It is not just that they are horrifically eye gouge worthy bad on both sides of the floor, especially offensively. It's that it looks like they have no plan. I do not know what they are trying to do schematically. I have no idea. They have no guards. Um, This is a team that at least has some size. It has some rebounding play through them. If you can't put the ball in the hole from behind the arc, stop trying so much. Um, and so I just don't understand what the directive is from Kenny Payne. I don't understand what the strategy is. Again, they have no guards, and yet they keep trying to play through their guards. It's getting to the point where it's like I never thought we could have asked this question even before the season, but it's getting to the point where you have to ask if they reasonable if they go like two and thirty-eight or two and whatever, if they win one or two games, do you pull the plug after year one? Um, and I think that I mean, that that's was, un, it's almost unfathomable. It was truly a guy that was this touted, but you're right. I mean, and yeah, and not only, not only that, but he, he took one of Duke's assistant coaches. Uh, Nolan Smith is, is there on the bench having to, having to live through this in addition to all those guys. So. There, Sam, there are Duke fans that think if Kenny, if things keep on going south, that if Kenny Payne gets the boot early, that Nolan may get a shot right now, they would, <laughs> they would promote somebody who's currently on this coaching staff to, to lead the thing. Yeah. I, I, mean, I yeah, I, 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 don't I, know. Don't, I don't think there's any chance that Kenny is let go before the season. Um, he's too beloved. Uh, it's too valuable there as a, as a basketball icon. Um, so I don't see that happening, but it's gotten to the point where like, if it, if it is truly that bad and the recruiting that was supposed to be sort of that the hope that you could sell to fans during all of this has not been there. does not look like it's going to be there. Um, I do think you have to at least ask that question, which I never could have even considered, you know, three months ago, but um, that's, that's how much of a disaster it has been there so far. I hope they turn it around. Wait, Hold on. They've they've got a couple four-star recruits. They got a couple top 100 recruits for next year. They don't have, they don't have a five-star stud, which I guess probably Kenny Payne and, and Nolan Smith, you sort of thought you would, but, it's not like the recruiting's terrible. You struck out big on DJ, which is the tough one. Um, right. And Caleb Foster has signed a different NIL, uh, NLI. Sorry, I'm, I get NIL and NIL all mixed up. But he he's come. He's not going there. Um, so yeah, it's it's a tough situation, and I think it's really unfair. I'm generally someone who's like, give him a couple of years, like you know, let them figure it out. I think, you know, sort of what we're seeing from, from uh, Capel at Pitt this year is proof of like, you know, maybe that does work sometimes. Um, and I think that it can, but I don't think Louisville should ever be this bad with its resources. And it's, it's sort of tough to even get your arms around that disaster. It is a hot mess. It's been, it's been abysmal to actually watch. And that's, a, I think it's one thing to be like bad at, the sport but to make it where it's unwatchable that's the the key here because that's where people especially you know their fans and their alumni bases uh they're not tuning into these games so that's the real key here but uh, i want to get out get you out of here on this question we're looking at the acc but on the national scale over the summer the talk was all about you know the conference realignment and you know 
teams moving uh, to what would not be a traditional conference for them. You know, the Big Ten gaining some teams, SEC gaining some teams, Big 12 and talking about gaining some teams. Have you heard any rumblings lately about ACC teams and how do they feel as a whole about the future of this conference? The ACC still feels so no. So no, no, I, I think we're on a pause. And um, thanks for doing this, Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the ACC has not been involved for a reason. It's because um, if somebody was going to challenge the grant of lights in court, they would have done so already. And the fact that they haven't with the number of high paid lawyers that they command, I think sort of tells you a lot about it. Um, eventually, it's going to get to a point where there's a cost benefit analysis and it's going to be financially feasible and respectable and make a whole lot of sense to leave the ACC and leave some guaranteed money on the table and, and bolt. Um, but we're just not there right now. And, and right now, until that, that I think is the thing, everyone gets so caught up in like, oh, are we going to be an SEC or a Big Ten team? Um, until that grant of rights, until you get to the point in terms of number of years that the grant of rights is worth getting out of, it's really hard to consider that teams are going to do that um, because the ACC is going to put up one hell of a fight. Um, you know, I think the conference moving its headquarters to Charlotte is, is a step that you don't take if you're, you know, about to splinter apart. Um, and I haven't heard anything from anybody about any continued movement. Of course, these things work in the shadows, but that grant of rights has been pretty ironclad. And, and I think that if I can say a message to, to listeners, like that is the thing to watch. Do not fall for the rumors. Do not fall for the hype. None of that matters because of the logistics that the grant of rights, um, you know, sort of present in, in terms you, of keeping you, things together. Do you think do you think it holds them together for like four or five more years? It's going to get to a point where the money makes more sense to leave once you get to per year distributions that are so large that like the money you'd be getting is um, going to offset like what you'd be basically relinquishing to the ACC by leaving. Four or five years, maybe. I think you're, I mean, again, I'm speculating here now at this point, um, but I think you're probably talking about like, eight or nine um you know i, I think it's going to take that long because the granite lights does go for so long well i think that's enough time for uh mike elko to catch the same lightning in Dabo swinney's bottle to allow duke to you know rocket to the top of the football conference the same way that clemson it feels like arbitrarily did the last 10 years so with that uh brendan marks and, and with that uh bit of optimism from me we'll let you go here uh thank you so much for taking the time again to speak with us. Uh, always good to have you on and to get your perspective on Duke and on the rest of the ACC. So uh, we appreciate it. And hopefully we'll, uh, we'll talk to you again sometime down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me y'all and uh, enjoyed it. All right, guys, uh, another great conversation with Brendan Marks. Uh, as we, as we were saying on his way out, uh, we love having him on. Uh, it's, it's always good to get insights from someone who, you know, watches the games as as closely as we do, but comes at them from a slightly different perspective, a slightly more professional perspective, if you will. Yeah, there's there's some terminology. Just sometimes he's talking about, you know, the way teams run sets and things like that. But I'm just like, damn, that guy knows who he's talking about. He's not he's not just waiting. Would hope. <laughs> Look, I, I just want everyone to know out there that uh, big pile of trash is an industry term. So, um, so that's good. <laughs> Yeah, poor, yeah. Uh, poor, poor Louisville. Poor we have not talked enough. <laughs> oh, man. Can you wait? I, I, can you imagine if we were doing the LBR, the Louisville basketball report? Man, no, be, I can't. I it can't. Would be I can't imagine. It that. would be really rough. Man, that 
I, I don't have a response to that. It, it's, that's a, it's a horrible that's a thing. dumpster fire. I will say, I, I will say, um, for for Duke fans that are gloating about it, uh, there was always a chance that Duke was just going to, you know, promote some alum into the head coaching position and that things would not go well. I know I have said it a hundred times this year, but be grateful that this John Shire thing is working out as well as it could. And that Duke we are very today, lucky. The Duke today is not Louisville. The Duke today is not Georgetown. The Duke today is not a lot of schools that have that have brought alumni back as head coaches and that are, you know, regret to, to, no, to different UNC extents. UNC under Matt Doherty. UNC under Matt Doherty. Absolutely. Ugh. Yeah. So I remember the name. But I, it, it was, I was gonna say interesting, Sam, right? I, I, I actually think, I was going to say, Sam, I actually think that perhaps the most interesting stuff to me of what Brendan told us was the praise for John Shire. It was it was laced throughout the entire conversation was how impressed he is with the way John Shire's brought this team together, especially on defense and and how much he feels like, you know, this isn't the same program. I think there was a there were a lot of people who thought, OK, you know, it's the guy who's been by Coach K's side for the past decade. It's someone who knows the, you know, knows what Coach K wants to do. We'll just roll along doing the same kind of stuff. And what you heard from Brendan and what we've seen is that John Shire is sculpting this in a new way and it's proving to be very successful. And, and for, for a guy like Brendan, who is objective, not a fan, no blue tinted glasses like we have, for him to have this kind of praise for John Shire, I think is very significant. I, I also think, you know, just the fact that we as Duke fans, you know, we have high expectations and we set, we have high standards and we kind of, you know, approach our team with a little bit more scrutiny than the outside world may do. Right. You know, the fact that he was like, Hey, yeah, we thought you were going to be a little worse, but like the fact that there's like that, he was super surprised at how our defense has come along so well about how John Shire has coached so well. He gave our overall team performance a B plus, which, Look, I, I I don't know many Duke fans that would say, yeah, you know, absolutely B plus. We probably would grade ourselves a little bit lower because we had those high expectations. But I think what Brendan just taught us here is pump the brakes, kind of, you know, take a step back and and really appreciate what we have seen through the first 34 days of the season. Maybe and, it's and he my... said and and he said the arrow is pointed upward on this team oh, as mm-hmm. much as any team in the country. That's that's exciting. Donald, maybe it's that uh, I didn't average a, a B plus when I was at Duke, but I, I, I had either. set my expectations low for this team. And I, I know when we talked in the preseason, we were we were guessing win totals and stuff. And, and I said, this is going to be a harder adjustment, I think, than than most Duke fans were were realizing. It has gone better than I expected. Um, I, I think I was probably so, sort of in line with where Brendan was saying, he thought Duke would be at this point in the season. And I'm pleasantly surprised. I'm surprised that despite all of the injuries and despite all the, the new faces on the team, that this team has, you know, a, a pretty decent idea of its identity without Derek Whitehead playing 30 minutes a game and, and, and being the go-to scorer. So uh, I, I think, I think Brendan sort of brought the uh, hopefully the, the level of sanity that, that we were looking for. Yeah. And you know what we can, we can call this cautious optimism, right? We can be proud of what we've done so far. We can be cautious, cautiously optimistic about the rest of the season because, you know, we're entering, we're going to be entering ACC season. We obviously have had one game so far, but for the most part, our guys, our young guys and our young coaching staff is going to, for the first time, endure what ACC season is like. We all know what it's like as a fan 
these guys are going to go through it for the first time. The rigors of having, you know, again, every fan base being against you and knowing your squad very well. But also, as Brendan pointed out, there's a lot of guys in the top half of this ACC who are also doing well and, and surprising on the season. So we're going to have some close contests. We're going to have some some tight battles. And we as a fan base should continue to be ready for that. No, Donald, I'm saving my unbridled optimism for Duke football. Uh, if, if they can go eight and four in, in Got my tickets first year. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see you there, by the way. Uh, if, if Duke could go eight and four in their first year under Mike Elko, man, the sky's the limit college football playoff in, I don't know, 2024, 2025, maybe it might, look, I guess look, it might take him a, a, a little time to recruit, but it feels like you could turn that around real quick. Look, look, you were joking about it. If this Duke team starts consistently winning seven, eight, maybe nine, or even occasionally 10 games in football, suddenly Duke is a way more attractive part of the conference realignment that's going to happen five, seven, eight, ten years down the road. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. not holding my breath for it. It would require uh, the attendance to pick up and the TV ratings to yeah. pick up. And yes. I don't know. But wins <laughs> wins bring fans. Wins help that. No question about wins it. Help that. Yeah, I, as I said, look at Clemson. Uh, I don't even know if you could call them a middling program prior to to their, you know, <laughs> to their appearance on the national stage. The yeah, last wait, they were pretty good back in my, in the eighties and, and early nineties. They were, they were, not, they were losing to us in, in the mid two thousands and nobody lost to us in the mid two thousands. So in any event, guys, we have gone on too long today, <laughs> uh, especially given that there's, that there's no actual basketball to talk about. So we're going to leave it there. We will be back before the wake forest game to preview that one. We didn't want to spend time on that here in case more news comes out either about Duke or about Wake in the days leading up to that one. So thanks again to Brendan Marks for taking the time to speak with us. Of course, read all of his coverage at The Athletic. Uh, I think we'd all agree that he is one of the, the best guys out there covering Duke basketball on a daily basis. And don't forget to email us, dbrpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing the questions. Uh, and certainly for the next episode, we will have less to talk about. So if you have questions, now's a good time uh, about the team, at least. Now's a good time to send them in. So for Jason Evans, for Donald Wine, I'm Sam Klein. This has been episode 468 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, take us home. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna fill up my water real quick if you'll just give me like 30 no, seconds. Good. I'll be right there. Don't worry about it. It's a smart man who fills up his water before doing a podcast. Says the coffer. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, when you get to be my age, you're lucky you can still speak. No, I was I was in the dentist chair this morning and uh I got like a pretty bad cough in the middle of it because you know you're in the dentist chair. <laughs> Um, right. then you feel well, bad because, because you're like, oh, I'm just like coughing right at you, but they're wearing that huge shield. So it's also right. like clockwork. Like they're like, all right, open wide and try to try to stay still. You're just like, <laughs> yeah, try to try to stay still while we're digging your mouth apart. <laughs> while we're By the way, performing paleontology on you. Coughing has become a whole different thing in the past couple of years. Like I used to cough and not think that much about it. Now, if I cough and I'm like within earshot of anyone, I'm like, I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm yeah, really like I'm I am sick. a horrible I'm... person. <laughs> I know. Or if you hear it, you're like, what? Who is yeah, that? Exactly. Who is that? Yeah, every cough is evil now.